Hi, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Kristen, and I like movies with space battles. I'm Dan, and I am a sugar-free Kool-Aid addict. I'm Cameron, and I like something, but I can't remember what it is. I'm Caitlin, and I like squid. Okay, so we figured, because this is our first official week of doing critiques, that we would start the first segment of this podcast by talking about the right place to start a novel. It's something that is super important, and so we just kind of wanted to start talking, what does it mean to start in the right place? Well, the first thing you do is you write something down. You start. Okay, that's true. (laughs) Well, Caitlin's not wrong, but, but we're hoping for something a little bit more, like, useful. I know that they say that if you ever go in for a job interview, most job interviews are decided within, what, is it the first 30 seconds? Mm-hmm. And similarly, you can usually get a pretty good impression of a book in the first few pages. Now, a lot of books start out strong and fizzle, but often, if the beginning is solid, the ending can be solid as well. And I think we can all think of stories where we were just engaged from the very beginning. Some things that are really important at the beginning of a book is that something needs to be happening. A lot of people tend to start their books trying to get the setting in place so much that they describe what's happening or they have their character doing something mundane and stupid, like doing the dishes when there's no relevance to the rest of the story, or randomly gathering herbs because it gives you a look at your fantasy world, or looking in a mirror so that you can describe what your character looks like. Please don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Something that I have been told a lot is that the best place to start your novel is when something exciting happens. And on the most part, I, I agree with that. Like something, you have to start the day something changes. But at the same time, you have to make sure that you're making your character relatable to the readers where there's a reason for us to care that something is changing. First thing came to my mind is The Hunger Games, where we start the day that Katniss's life changes forever because she volunteers for Prim Spot. But we're introduced to a bit of her world in a way that's not overbearing. And so we, we understand to a certain extent exactly what the stakes are and what Katniss wants. But we'll note, we'll note that in Hunger Games, while we are just following her morning routine, it's not just any random morning. It is It jumps in right on the morning of the reaping, so there's an added tension to the scene that continues through the um, morning. On that note, they don't go into the 20-year history of what the reaping is. She Way just... longer than 20 years. <laughs> okay, fine, like the 75-year history. 74? I don't remember. It yeah, doesn't really it's gotta matter. it going to be 74. Because the next year is 75. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> they assume that their readers will catch on. They say that to become a good writer, you have to read good books. And a lot of those really famous books are from, honestly, a different time period where you had established authors with really long introductions. And we might not necessarily get that chance when we're writing. I had a story I was working on where I realized it was really, really, really boring exposition. And I decided one day I was just going to sit down and write until the first exciting thing happened, and then I would make that the new chapter one. And it took about 17 hours and 15,000 words of utter garbage. But I eventually got there, and hopefully you won't all have to do that. But finding the right place to start is crucial. I think a lot of people spend so much time setting up their story, so they want to make sure that their reader understands what's happening before the story starts. And I've heard Kristen Nelson, I think her name is, of Nelson Literary, she has a blog called Pub Crawl, and she has a list of things that bug her about the beginnings of books. And one thing she says is that a lot of authors would do well to either cut their first chapter 
or switch their first and second chapters so that all of that exposition happens after you've already been introduced to the character so that you care about them before their head gets chopped off or well actually you shouldn't chop off your main character's head unless the whole book is about how it happened and why that's prescriptive actually i probably shouldn't say that <laughs> um but chopping off heads is allowed it is, but not, not if, in real life. It's not if it's a fake out where you have a whole first chapter dedicated to somebody and the book isn't actually about them. That's true. That is frustrating. Yeah. What are some things you guys think that a beginning of a story should accomplish? I was thinking that one of the things that matters most to me is having a good point of view or a good voice. Like anybody can wake up and start their day, but if you have a spectacular voice while you're doing it, I'm gonna be a lot more interested in your story than if it's like I got out of bed, I brushed my teeth. So I, I think we need to establish a point of view. That's something the beginning should do. With that voice, I mean, think about like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. where from the very beginning we know that it's kind of a silly voice. You know that the Dursleys, especially because it's describing them, are silly. There's a whole lot that happens in those first couple of paragraphs that don't actually say anything more than the Dursleys didn't like their neighbors very much. But really what she's saying is the Dursleys are really silly. This is the way they act. And she does that all with voice rather than saying they were weird. Another thing that an opening should do is at least give you maybe a promise of what the conflict will be. Uh, I've written maybe 20 ancient prologue where something bad happens beginnings. And the problem with those is there's such a huge disconnect between that and the first chapter, and they're an awful lot of fun to write, but your first chapter should give you a pretty good expectation of what's happening. And again, I think Harry Potter is a good example of that. I think Ender's Game, The Hunger Games, are also good examples of that. Twilight does that too. I was looking at the lacuna right before we started here. That's another really good one. Another point to consider, bringing it down from a broad first chapter, but even just looking at the first paragraph, that I think it's incredibly important to establish who the POV character is and what they want and why they're doing what they're currently doing. I think it was Richard Peck that said, you're no better than your first line, essentially. Which, that feels like a lot of pressure on a first line, but to a certain extent he's right. Like, if I pick up a book and the first paragraph doesn't immediately pull me in, I'm not going to keep reading it. Life is too short. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> if you do that ironically, it could be funny. But <laughs> that people have already done it ironically a ton of times before, probably. Oh, I'm sure. Maybe. Well, there's a whole it was a dark and stormy night contest where you write the worst first lines. Yes, I support that. <laughs> so, what are some things that don't work? I guess. Well, we've talked about a couple of them. I think one that people like to dive into are battle scenes mm. because it's really hard to care what's happening when you don't have enough time to get to know a character before they are either getting hurt or cutting someone else's head off or whatever. You don't understand the stakes. You don't understand what's going on. And while it might be really cool in, like, Lord of the Rings, it's really hard to establish something in a book that is going to make your reader care about what's going on. This is something that we do a lot, I think, because a lot of movies start out with action scenes. And a lot of us, we are exposed to storytelling through film. And just because... And this is something, a whole other story for another day, but... Action isn't necessarily exciting. Action is most exciting when you care about the people doing it. And having it as your beginning might look exciting on paper, but isn't that engaging. Another sort of opening is the dream opening. Ominous dream, a fake-out dream. I've seen a couple of those in books and video games. I think those are really difficult for the same reason that you wouldn't want to spend an entire chapter on developing a character only to kill them off. If you spend an entire chapter on a dream where it's not the actual setting or the world that you're in, then it's kind of a disappointment when you get to the actual book. And to 
kind of throws the reader off, I would imagine, because the reader has no idea what to expect after the dream is over. Because anyone can dream about anything, so it just doesn't work as well as maybe it's intended to. There's a lot of stuff that you want to do in your opener. You want to get to a point where you have information, enough information about the characters that you care about them and enough information about the world that you can understand what's going on and that you can do some foreshadowing and some hooks to lead on to what's coming next. What So a lot of times then what the temptation is is that, well, I'm going to write a, well, in the beginning, the gods look down on the world and they blah, 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 blah. The problem with that, which format to get a lot of information across really quickly, the issue is that, as we mentioned earlier, there's a huge disconnect between dumping that much raw information and the actual character conflicts that should be the driving force of the novel. So once you actually get out of your, your info dump, your paragraphs of just pure world-building information, until you get to the next part, your reader is just like, okay, I mean, this is, this is some, maybe some interesting stuff, but I don't have any personal conflict to attach it to yet. So most people really just aren't going to care enough to keep going through it. Which is really hard for us to hear because we put our heart and soul into these stories and some of us are like, look at this really cool world I made. Look at all these customs and cultures and languages and blah, 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 blah. you can eventually get all that out. But if you just blast people with it up ahead, you're going to lose them. It's hard to hear, but most people's worlds are not interesting enough for people to care about them without a more interesting character to go with them. You don't need to know the entire economic system of a country that you're writing about unless it's relevant. You don't need to know how water gets to the village or whatever else. And those are really smart things to plot out yourself so that your world makes sense. But unless it has direct influence on the plot, it probably doesn't matter. But what we do need is we need a character that's actively protagging. So what does it mean to protag? Okay, protag is the moment when a main character starts to feel like a main character, when they get out of their passive lifestyle and do something active. Like, I volunteer as tribute, or I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way, that sort of thing. And oftentimes protagging is a big gesture like that, but I think there are a lot of small ways that you can make your protagonist protag, and I guess that active nature of that protagonist is going to make us all care about your world a lot, lot more. It's really hard to care about somebody who also does not care what's going on. Yeah, if you're not doing anything, like, I don't want to read about you. (laughs) That's mean. (laughs) We tend to like characters that do stuff, and if your protagonist doesn't do anything, they won't be all that interesting. The real trick is finding ways that can have them do things that tell us a lot about them and the world they're in at the same time. I think a lot of times that is the key, that if you can have a character who is actively doing something so we're interested in that personal connection and then have them be doing something that does the world building you need so that we can understand the larger context moving forward. And then we care about the context because we have a character we like who also cares. When we were discussing this before, Dan had a really good example with Star Wars. We don't start with the aunt and uncle's death. But we do know from the first time we see Luke that he wants to leave the farm. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to kill off your main character's aunt and uncle in the first chapter. But we should know enough from the first chapter so that when that inciting incident happens, we will know what the character will choose or at least where the adventure will take him. Even before the you know the stormtroopers kill his parents and he's forced to decide whether or not he's going to bury his head in the sand and go, even before that you have smaller examples like when he decides to go after the droids. His aunt and uncle don't tell him to go out into the dangerous desert and do it. It's something he elects to do by himself. And that makes him a lot more active than you see and makes him a lot more active character than... I think you see in a lot of new writers' stories. 
It makes the story more human, too. I mean, my number one piece of writing that I try and follow is that, or advice that I try and follow, is that characters move plot. Plot should not be just kind of happening around the characters. Characters need to be actively participating in that plot in order to make it happen. I think that's exactly when you start to get forced characters, when Mm -hmm. the plot is forcing characters to do things. So we should probably move on to our next segment where we critique. This week we have a submission about a young girl who discovers that she is in fact a girl and not a boy, and that she's been living with monks her whole life, and when she finds out that she's a girl, she realizes she has to leave. So we're going to model the way we do our our writing group. <laughs> um, something second year yeah, that's exactly what it is. We're going to start by doing positive things, the things that we liked, the things that we feel the submission did well. Then we'll talk about things that might need a second look. One thing we try to avoid is telling people what to do with their story, which is why we use the phrase giving things a second look. This is what I think you were trying to accomplish. This is how I think it would work better or how it wasn't as effective. And is the submission we're going to be shaking going to be available for anyone listening to this to yes. read on their own? Yes. Um, we'll be posting the submission on our website so that you can actually follow along and see the things that we're talking about. So one thing that I really appreciated about this submission is that there are lots of small details that I felt helped me understand characters better. Like just on the first page, second paragraph, Brother Claude is, is writing and... He says that the act of writing brought him peace. It was like a small way of imitating the creation of the gods, his own tiny creation in ink. And I think that sentence says a lot about who Claude is and what he wants from life and what he enjoys. And I think it really helps solidify this random monk that we're meeting. It's also a nice little bit of world building. We immediately know um, this world has a different religious system than ours, mm-hmm. but in many ways similar well, to some that we Western have. civilization anyway. Oh, that's true. <laughs> To go along with that, there are lots of really great characterizations. Just the way the monk reacts to the girl as she comes in. He keeps writing and waits for her to come all the way in. He has all of these thoughts about why she, well, he thinks she's a he at that particular moment, but of why she's in there. And it gives you a really good sense for what his role is and where he's coming from and what kind of monk he is. He's a very warm, jovial, wants to help people sort of guy, it seems like. And one way we were shown a lot about the characters is through the dialogue. I felt that there was a lot of great dialogue, especially in the first section, second page. You have um, Claude and Jean, John, Jean, going back and forth. (laughs) And it just read really smoothly to me. And uh, just how people talk and say a whole bunch about them. There's some wonderful voice in here. There are lots of really funny asides and little funny, 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 funny details. Like when the girl says, when they're talking about the birds and the bees, she says, we're not like birds or bees. We're more like rocks. <laughs> I thought that was great. Or um, when he gives her a book on anatomy to help her out, the name of the monk who wrote it was Somebody the Chaste, which yeah. gave me a laugh. There's lots of tongue-in-cheek humor in here. I also thought that was really funny. There's a line where it's like, for all that he's called the chaste, he wrote an awful lot about women. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I had to snicker at that. One last thing before we switch over. I really liked how um, the details about the world were snuck in, like the ghosts getting hungry after harvest time. Or a contingent of dread knights. What's a dread knight? I I want to know. That's so cool. Sounds awesome. Sounds dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) That was bad. That was Dan's job and I stole it. (laughs) So let's move over to things that we think might need another look. 
I think one thing that we pretty much universally agree on is that it is, a, well, of the four of us, so as much of the universe as that counts for, this which is, is totally very the whole universe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we represent it's all about us. <laughs> Gosh, no. So we thought that it is a strange place to begin a story with the birds and the bees conversation, even though it's pretty clearly intended to be funny to a certain extent. This reads like it's intended for a younger audience, and I know that I, when I was younger, and even now, probably don't want to read a book that starts off with, I don't Hair. know. Yeah. <laughs> Anatomy. Yeah. Well, and also, I was just thinking that from a parent's perspective, if this is an adult book, like, that's a terrifying conversation to have with kids sometimes. And, like, it's awkward for everybody all around, and starting your book in a place where everybody is going to feel awkward is maybe not the best idea. I don't know. I mean, it guarantees a reaction. I guess. I'd say it's but... shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The other thing that in the opening that kind of jarred for me was the point of view. Yes. I was never, I'm guessing this is like a loose third. I haven't read a loose third or an omniscient point of view that has worked for me like ever actually. But I was really confused every time we jumped from the, the monk's head to the girl's head and who was thinking what and and why we were in their heads. If we have a protagonist, I would like to at least be focused on them enough so that I care what's happening to them. Yeah. It goes from, I think, Claude to Jean to Philippe, and then back to Jean. Well, and there are a couple of, like, out-of-body moments, I guess. Like, just on the first page, I thought the first few paragraphs established Brother Claude pretty obviously as the main character. And then we're still in his head, at least as a reader. I think we're in his head, and it goes into, he was a little rotund and rather gray, his whole demeanor one of invitation and kindness. And to me, that's not something you think about yourself. And so I was like automatically drawn away from this guy I had just gotten very close to because I was in his brain. And so there's a little bit of whiplash when you change character point of view too often without an obvious reason. Because I have read omniscient books that I like and that I think work. It's just really difficult to do. And this, in some ways, falls into another thought I had, which is about making promises. So I mentioned earlier that the action prologue can often throw people off if there's this really epic beginning and then we go to someone piddling around in the farm. And the reason is maybe we wanted to see more of the action prologue, or maybe we stopped reading because it was an action prologue and we wanted to read Guy on a Farm and we didn't know about that. This is a plug for not having a prologue in your book, by the way. <laughs> I second that. You can. That's not a hard and fast rule, but just a thought. It's prescriptive. Yeah, it's very prescriptive. Don't listen very to it. Very prescriptive. <laughs> and the thing, I got a lot of good laughs out of this submission, but at this moment, I'm not really certain which direction is it going to go. Is this going to be a straight comedy? Is this a satire? Mm-hmm. Is this a story where people will get killed? Is this about identity? Is it more YA? Is it full-on adult? So, so as we mentioned earlier, kind of the central conceit that you get in this opening section moving forward is that you have this girl who, at the age of 11, was brought into an all-male monastery and lived there for an entire year thinking that she was a boy until now with the onset of puberty. It's becoming obvious that that is not the case. And I'm not saying that that could not happen, especially given that this is a fictional world, but I was not given sufficient justification to buy it especially considering that according, maybe I missed something, but that she lived on the street for the first 11 years of her life. And while the novel does point out that in the extremely private confines of the monastery, that, you know, the people are, they're being cloistered and whatever, and you're not seeing a lot of each other's bodies. So maybe I can buy that. 
but I don't buy that a girl could live on the street for 11 years and not know she was a girl. I think I will second that, but my the moment where I just like pulled out and had to go, wait, what? Was when Gina's like, what's a girl? And I was like, how do you not know what a girl is? You're 11, You know the birds clearly. and the bees. And yeah, like you, you have to know what a girl is. So I think I will agree that well, there are lots of details of world building that I like in this. I wish I understood how a world like this can exist. And mm-hmm. that was a little jarring for me as a reader. And also, I I know that this is clearly fantasy world. I want to know is, or have a better feeling, I guess, for is there really going to be magic in here? Uh, my impression when they talk about ghosts after harvest is that's a superstition, a folktale. And that there weren't literally going to be ghosts. Well, I'm really super excited for ghosts. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see their teeth. I mean, they're hungry. Yeah. They have to feed on something. Okay, I have a little silly thing that drew me out a little bit. Just at the end, when Jean is told that she has to change her name because she's a girl, I was like, Jean's a perfectly unisex name! And I don't know. That's that's my reader response. I (laughs) (laughs) I actually had two, like, smaller sort of you can take or leave whatever they were kind of, yeah, reader response things. One is that if I randomly started bleeding and didn't know what was going on, I would not be like, huh, that's probably puberty. Like, can no, you think of if you I would suddenly be like, like, started I have bleeding been out of your mouth? Somehow. Yeah. I am dying. I have a disease. Yeah, I think I would have had a slightly more um, strong reaction to that. And then the other one is when the second time the monk starts talking to her about the anatomy book and that he was the one who brought them in. I got this really super creepy vibe from the monk, which is a lot different than the way he was represented at the beginning. Yeah, because he's like blushing and he's talking to this like 14-year-old girl about women's bodies and it was super awkward. So I don't know if that's what you're going for, but if it was, you hit it right on. (laughs) I think awkward is a good word for the opening scene. Yeah, You know... One of the dangerous things about writing characters is that you can't easily step out of yourself and see how this person actually feels. I had a character who I intended for him to be a straight-on good guy, and all three of you thought he was, he was a bad so guy. crazy! Until the very end of the book, when you're like, oh, I guess he was a good guy all along. He had too much of an air of mystery about him. It was just, like, suffocating us. One of my most embarrassing failures as a writer. There are many. So I think that pretty much wraps up what we wanted to talk about. So this has been Literary Work in Progress, and we will see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.